Hello and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. And this May, we're talking to writers I love. So I came to Sci-Fi's TV show, The Magicians, with some degree of worry. I really love the books that the series is based on, also named The Magicians, as you may imagine. And in fact, we had the author of those books, Love Grossman, on this very show back in January, where he talked about his approach to having the books adapted for TV. The Magicians in book form or on TV, is not for everybody, let's say. It's an emotionally risky show about a bunch of 20-somethings who meet in grad school and make very 20-something mistakes, which is to say they drink too much and sleep with each other in the wrong permutations and do incredibly stupid things with their lives. Yeah, that sounds like most 20-something grad students, I know. But here's the twist. They are in grad school to learn how to become responsible magicians. But this is no Harry Potter. In the world of the magicians, magic is just a thing that enhances the stuff about you that's already there. If you're depressed, magic is just going to make you more depressed. If you have an addictive personality, magic is just going to help you get more addicted. It's a beautiful, clever show, one of my favorites. It's very different from Grossman's books, but it also captures their wild, nerdy spirit. Here's a clip from season two, actually, if you want to hear what this show sounds like. The young magicians have to pass an unexpected test from a guard when they travel to the magical land of Fillory on a quest to retrieve an important crown. What? popular American television program stars actor Tim Daly. He was on a lot of TV shows. There is only one correct answer. Give me the next question. This hit single is performed by offspring of famous entertainers. You will receive a single hint. Your hint is Beach Boys. Hold Hold on on by by Wilson Phillips. Phillips. That song is my jam. Wait, all these questions are from the 90s. It's not the 1990s on Earth right now. The Magicians recently completed third season is a cinch for my year-end top ten list, so I wanted to talk to one of its two showrunners, Sarah Gamble. Sarah has a rich and varied TV background. Before The Magician, she was probably best known for her work on Supernatural on The CW. She's one of the few women to really have carved out a hugely successful niche working in genre television, and her scripts for The Magicians are full of wit and weirdness and sly heart. But when great TV showrunners come up, how often do you hear the name Sarah Gamble? I'm going to guess not a lot, and I think you should hear her name far more often. Magician Season 3 just wrapped, and Sarah's new show, You, which she's done for the network Lifetime, premieres this fall. I sat down with Sarah to talk about creating great TV. My guest is Sarah Gamble. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're talking with writers I love this month. And you're one of them. And so I wanted to sort of talk to you about like, I guess your origin story, you know, when did you know you wanted to write and like, how did that come about? Because it's different for some people knew when they were kids and some people kind Mm -hmm. of fall into it, you know? I didn't know this was what I would do for a living when I was a kid, but I was always a writer. I was always that kid in the class who, when there was a creative writing assignment and all the cool kids were like, oh, how many sentences does this have to be? <laughs> five five sentences exactly. And I would like write five pages and then embarrassed, I would only turn in five sentences. <laughs> yeah. It was sort of, I always felt compelled to write. High school, it was all poetry, actually. I got really into the adolescent angst poetry. That was my first connection to really to really working hard at it, actually. I would write every day. I would write instead of taking notes in class. I would go to open mic nights. And then, you know, as life does, there's a certain point in my life where I was like, and you need to have health insurance, (laughs) right? (laughs) You need to be able to pay your rent. What is your strategy? I was um, pounding the pavement as an actor, and I was writing some of my own material in a play. And the feedback from the writing was so positive and so strong that... I started to realize, like, maybe this is a path 
worth walking down a little bit. I felt most like myself. Sure. The more I write, the more I feel like me. When you find that, you should like hold on to it, I think. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you dug out any of your high school poetry and looked it over? The female protagonist of You, the show that I just worked on for Lifetime sure, sure. Netflix, uh, her name is Guinevere Beck. Her friends call her Beck. Um, she is a poet. And in writing the pilot with Greg Berlanti, we needed her to have a poem that she was working on and that she would eventually read in front of a big crowd in Brooklyn. And so I dug up a poem that I wrote when I was her age or a little bit younger. And it was the first time I recycled my poems in a piece of TV writing. It was weirdly vulnerable. And then that was the audition sides. Mm -hmm. So I watched about five dozen actresses recite the poem as though in front of a jaded crowd in Brooklyn. <laughs> and it was was a strangely vulnerable experience, but but I'm glad I got the chance to do it. It kind of felt like something was kind of coming full circle. Did you feel like you learned something about Teenage You from watching a bunch of people read that piece? Well, to be clear, she's in her 20s and she's a better poet than I was when I was a teenager. Okay. But <laughs> I used what I had to work with, which was my right. own poem. I did. I mean, one thing I was reminded of is that poems have a special kind of power mm -hmm. and they are sort of written to be read aloud. And when they are performed well, they kind of bypass your brain and go right into your heart. Right. And I watched that happen a couple of times over the course of this season where the, you know, otherwise jaded producers would turn to me and they'd be like, oh, that line. Mm. I know how that feels. And I was like, maybe I'll quit it all and just be a starving poet. No, I will not do that. <laughs> um, you mentioned that you were working as an actor. And I've talked to a lot of writers mm -hmm. who got into TV writing through acting. And I yeah. think that's an interesting path. And like, how do you think trying to be an actor informed your writing? God, in so many ways. I mean, technically, the way that I write a script, I think, is informed a lot by my training as an actor. Mm -hmm. The thing that I pass along to the most writers when I'm reading their scripts and I'm giving them notes is this thing that was drilled into me. I mean, this is the most basic thing you learn when you're an actor, that you don't want to go for the result, right? And that, in fact, people in life, they're not like trying to cry. They're trying not to cry, right? And the performance is better when you watch an actor try not to cry and fail versus try really hard to cry because the script says tears fall out of his eyes, right? So I write scripts like that. I, I write scripts indicating that the character is trying to get on top of his emotion instead of feeling it or trying to cover up for it or trying not to. And I mean, it helps the actor. Yeah, that's interesting because you see that a lot in The Magicians. The characters are like on the verge of tears, but they're always holding back. And when it breaks through, it's that much more affecting, I think. Honestly, part of that is also our taste in post because – when you see an actor on the verge of tears, it's very possible that there was a take where they were overcome and screaming and crying. Mm -hmm. And I think tears are a really powerful flavor. And sometimes if they cry, you don't have to. But if they don't quite cry when you're watching a show, then the audience is more moved and more emotional. And, you know, I, I sadistically want to make the audience cry whenever possible, but in like an entertained way. Right. So I'll often pick the take where you can see all of the emotion, but they're not giving into it. That's just my preference. As, as you know, I love this show and I, well, push it, I push it on so many people. But I thought season three was just uh, above and beyond anything you'd done before uh, in terms of the show and, you know, everything else. And like, I was so impressed with how emotional it was because this was not always a show I went to for emotional beats because this is a wild show for listeners who haven't seen it like there are flying ships there are castles there are talking animals like there are all the fantasy tropes you're thinking of but it's very emotionally grounded i'm wondering how you keep 
those emotions grounded when you've got all this wild stuff going on, you know? I think we start from the grounded story. Believe it or not, when we're writing about a flying ship, we're talking about the story like, what would this be if the ship couldn't fly? What would this be if magic weren't real, if it were just a metaphor? First and foremost, we're telling a story about these young people who are coming of age and learning how to be adults. Mm -hmm. And the reason that the show is cool is because they can do a bunch of magic, right? And occasionally consult dragons or something. (laughs) Um, But we start by trying to find stories that move us and that feel personal to us. So there's never really been a separation for me between spectacle and flying ships and monster. I mean, I love monsters, but monsters are so emotional for me. I mean, the moment in Pan's Labyrinth where the pale man puts the eyeball into his hand and you're like, oh shit, it was an eye socket this whole time. The first time I saw that, I burst into tears. It was just so beautiful and it felt so emotional to me, right? I'm a tough bitch in many ways, (laughs) but sometimes I get a little choked up. Just the tool is so powerful sometimes. It's like, what better way to express orgasm than they're flying on the ceiling? What better way to express, I've never been able to show who I am to my father than do a tiny piece of magic in front of him. And he just watches it and you watch the father, watch the son, right? As a writer who gets to write this kind of stuff, I've been handed such powerful tools and they're emotional tools, I think. You use the magic as, in some ways, a metaphor for trauma and mental illness and things that people are trying not to deal with, but have to, you know, it literally in the show, the magic sort of comes out of people's hands, like it literally f- flies out of their fingers. And tell me about the early before even the show was being written, maybe like tell me about the conversations between you and, and John McNamara and some of the other folks who work on the show that led to like, OK, this is a show about magic, but also it's a show about uh, overcoming the bad things in yourself or living with them, I guess would be a better way to put it. I had read the books years before and then we realized we might be able to get to write the pilot and he read them and then we chatted about it and two of them had been written at that time. The first conversations were about magic in Lev's books being a metaphor for art because that's how we related to the stories. And the the idea that for some of us, for many of us, we were teenagers or children or young adults and feeling strong feelings and going through trauma and art was this way of expressing and finding purpose and finding connection with other people who resonate with the same thing you do. And I think you could walk into a certain room and they could talk about basketball that way or car racing or politics, right? It's just whatever it is that ignites your passion, right? Whatever it is that your soul feels like it was here to do. So for us, the conversation was a lot about art. It didn't erase the trauma of my adolescence or my young adulthood. It didn't make everything okay, but it did make it bearable. Mm -hmm. And it did help me understand who I was as a person, right? And it's easier to be fucking alive if you have a sense of who you are and what your purpose is. And to me, it's actually less important to truly understand whether I've made it up or it's been handed to me or do it. Is this just because I say so? I don't know. I like this thing. I like talking about this thing. I like doing this thing. I like struggling to create this thing. And it makes my life possible and bearable. And it makes the traumas feel like something that can be healed and overcome or at least lived with. So that was always a really good North Star because the magic doesn't really fix anything. But sometimes it does make it better. Often it complicates things because it's a TV show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true. You mentioned that, you know, when you started out, like the writing people really sparked to and you were like, maybe I should pursue this. Yeah. And you mentioned like finding your purpose. When did you feel like, when did you feel like, okay, I'm a writer. This is going to be my life, you know? 
I don't know that there was a moment. Do you still not feel that way? Because sometimes I don't. <laughs> I mean, I do and I don't. I don't know. I mean, it's really, this changes day to day. It's like phases on the moon or something. But um, I was such a troubled teenager. And I was uh, in so much pain. And writing, writing in a journal, writing poems, reading things that other people had written helped me so much that... You know, it was enough for me that this thing had appeared in my life that helped a little. And I never really questioned it. You know, there was a moment where I realized I could really do this for a living, where I had to. I remember sitting down and having a fairly serious conversation with myself about what that meant. Because when you write for money, when you write for a living, that means that this little precious thing that was yours that you did in a corner of a coffee shop just to make yourself feel okay, right? You are now going to use those same things at other people's kind of beck and call, basically, especially when you're starting, right? Many, many more compromises would have to be made. And the way that I decided to go about it was, okay, I'm going to try this. And if it really feels like it takes all the joy out of writing, then I'm just going to stop and figure something else out. By the way, I had no idea and no fallback what that would be. I don't know, go to acupuncture college or something? I don't know. I don't know. We can't talk about fantasy shows on TV without talking about the two million pound gorilla in the room, Game of Thrones. You yes. know? And uh, there was recently a report that their final season, they're going to have 15 million an episode. I'm guessing the magician's budget is not 15 million an episode. It I don't not. know it, but I'm guessing it's lower. It is much, much lower. <laughs> How do you like I, I think the show is as visually interesting as anything on TV. How do you make visually engaging fantasy television that like tells this fantastical story when you don't have all the money in the world the approach to the story has to be a little bit different i have never worked on a show that has 15 million anything anywhere near that is several episodes don't get me wrong i lust for that i just want to watch it all the time it's gorgeous and i don't think having less money is an excuse I don't think people turn on the magicians and say, well, you know, they're in a different category. So excuse them if they're cheesy. It's like, no, this shit should not be cheesy. But my whole career has kind of been training in that. Supernatural was training in that, too. And it's actually this is part of a long, long tradition that you can see in horror movies, which tend to be extremely effective at monster building while usually being very low budget. And it's about that truism that it has to be just as important what you don't see yeah. as what you do see. And where I think this is good for our show, healthy for our show, is that throwing scope at a story problem is rarely the most satisfying way to get to a solution. It's it, it's a way to um, just expand out and out and out instead of doing what we talk about in the writer's room, which is like diving straight down mm-hmm. into a problem. And I think the magicians benefits from the fact that we frequently run out of money because we have to ask ourselves hard questions about what is really going on between these two characters right now. What does he really want? How do you solve this problem if you can't throw a giant piece of 3D VFX at it? And we pick our battles. I mean, we do have the sequence where you go to the underside of Fillory and like that's all VFX. Yeah. There's um, a dragon in season three that looks very convincing, too. So, yeah. yeah, we save up for those a little bit. You know, we balance things out. Although, you know, this happens at every level. If you think like a line producer when you're watching Game of Thrones, you will see that for every giant battle, there is a scene that's just a bunch of people in a room and Cersei's wearing something awesome and getting drunk and talking a lot. 
that's how we on TV save money to do the big battle. And everything else is just a question of scale. I, I was thinking about, um, you know, how you're, you're talking about approaches to solving these story problems, like in season three of The Magicians, the main character, Quentin, who suffers from depression or anxiety or something like that. Like you could have a, an episode where he like battles himself in like a CGI landscape or something, you know, but instead you just have like two Jason Ralphs and one is telling the other, you're going to fail, you're terrible, nobody mm-hmm. likes you. And like my wife, who suffers from depression, is like a mental health advocate said that was like one of the most effective depictions of depression that she's seen like ever because it's just like it's such a small scale smart way that i think you can hook into it more you know instead of like making it a big thing i think that that sort of small scale sometimes is easier to approach on a human level as much as i love ice dragons you know breaking down walls you know what i mean sure and In that case, we never even considered, just as an example, there was never a giant VFX landscape version of that story. (laughs) We're all depression professionals. (laughs) (laughs) So many writers are. um, I actually think the tone was set when John and I were writing the pilot because we were trying to find a place to start. And it is implied strongly throughout the books that Quentin is battling depression. But he doesn't start in a mental hospital in the books. We talked a lot about it with Lev. And we said, you know, we'd like to make this explicit. We would like to start him really at a low moment in the ongoing story of his mental health. And I think from there on out, the tone was just set. And every writer who comes in understands that that's part of the story. It was interesting because, you know, Dean Fogg takes away his antidepressants. It's like the first thing he does in the pilot. And then we had all of these discussions about the honeymoon period when something great comes into your life. And we knew as soon as we got in the writer's room for season one, we were going to have to find ways to bring this back again and again and again and again, because it's just not realistic that something great comes into your life. And then your set point, like your mental health set point just changes forever. Didn't make sense to us. A lot more TV shows are tackling mental health. And a problem with mental health is uh, TV wants to change. It wants the characters to slowly grow. And mental health does not want you to change. Mental health keeps pulling you back to this sort of place where either you're beating yourself up or, you know, whatever. Like, how did you guys approach that question of we need to keep this a motif while also allowing character progression, you know? I think in life it's like that. I mean, I still I'm an anxious person by nature. I can be depressive. But if you had to, like, describe my character on a breakdown to cast me, Mm -hmm. you would probably talk about the fact that she seems chill, but she's actually very anxious. And that was true when I was 12 and it was true when I was 25 and it's true today. But I have also matured in other ways. Both things can be true at the same time. And when something comes up that completely freaks me out, I deal with it a little bit differently. This is not a very um, flashy answer, but it's really just being as specific as we possibly can, going through this long conversation about if this is the series of circumstances today, remembering where Quentin just was, thinking about where we want him to go, how does he react to this? And then after somebody pitches, here's how he reacts to it, we say, would he really? And what would be more surprising? And would this make sense? And would that be it? So it's just, it's like a a room full of slightly sadistic armchair psychologists, right? (laughs) Yeah. 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 Were you always into fantasy, sci-fi, horror? Was that your thing, even when you were like a kid or a teenager? Fairy tales and also really scary things. I remember going to visit cousins in Canada, kind of on the countryside when I was 11 or 12. We would go rent movies and there was a whole horror section. And I think over the course of that summer, I 
I watched every single movie in the horror section when I was 11. I just love being scared. I think the person who talks about monsters in the way I most relate to is Guillermo del Toro. If you ever hear him talk about how emotional and and how deep it goes for him when he's creating monsters, I hear that and I'm just like, oh, are we related? Are we the same person? Right? Yeah. Um, I'm so glad he's there to explain it more eloquently than I can. Yeah. That um, horror is not a stepping stone. It's a cathedral. That's how I feel about it. Do you have favorite monsters? You, you mentioned the Pale Man already, but are he there other... A, yeah. yeah, he is a favorite monster for sure. I mean, Frankenstein's monster, all that pathos. I think the classics are the classics for a reason. We named a creature in The Magicians after a monster I read about in a short story called Haxon Paxson. Mm-hmm. The name of the the collection is Every House is Haunted. Okay. And it was about a girl who was manifesting interesting um potentially interesting powers and her older brother who's trying to take care of her was like, is she okay? Is she is she not okay? Is this real? Is this happening? And um, she, at one point she was just like, oh yes, that's my Haxon Paxson. Yeah. And uh, it was this invisible voice in another room and the door was closed. Like, don't go in there. My Haxon Paxson is in there. And there was something so terrifying to me about the fact that what is a Haxon Paxson? So that's one of my favorites. Hey, are you hiring? Are you posting a position for, say, your magic school that teaches young magicians the best way to use their powers to job sites? And then you're waiting and you're waiting for the right people to see it? Well, I tell you what, ZipRecruiter is going to help you with that. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for identifies people with the right experience, and it invites them to apply to your job. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive, so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. No matter the size of your business, if you are my listener, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash think. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash think. ZipRecruiter.com slash think. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. I, I did want to talk a little bit about the characters on the magicians, uh, because often when you have women in a production like this, they're you know to be saved, or they're the goal at the end of the rainbow. And the women on the magicians are so complex. Tell me about that, like those conversations, because obviously the center of the show is Quentin, but all of the people on this show are dealing with stuff in interesting ways, including like a character like Fenn. I'll say for the audience was sort of this guest star who's gradually like become a farm and now is a regular on the show. She's a knife maker's daughter who uh, married one of the other characters and is now sort of in royalty in in this magical land of Fillory. Trying to explain plot points on this show always takes like five yeah, minutes. I mean, it's our fantasy <laughs> version of that very classic story of somebody being obliged to marry because they're in a certain position of power, right? right? So Elliot is a high king. Everyone who watches the show knows that he is very queer and that marrying a woman probably wasn't on his to-do list. Right. Um, but because he's high king, 
and, you know, he arranges this for an, a number of very important plot reasons. And then he ends up betrothed. It's an arranged marriage with a girl who was raised knowing she was going to marry the High King. And then she meets him. And, you know, he primarily sleeps with men. And um, they have nothing in common. They're not from the same planet. And that's where we started. We started with that as a, I mean, it's an, it's an exaggerated fantasy version of a story you could tell about many, many kings and queens in England and all kinds of places, right, around the world where you marry for reasons other than love, mm-hmm. right? What I'm saying is, I think there are versions of the story that would just be Quentin's story. And yeah. I think that you from the first were like, no, this is also Julia's story and Alice's yes. story and Elliot's story and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm wondering like building an ensemble in this age of we kind of do the antihero show where we have like the one guy that every or sometimes one woman that is doing dark things and everybody has to react to building an ensemble show seems like a challenge, especially with just 13 episodes. So I'm wondering like your approach to making those characters as well realized as Quentin. First and foremost, I was just excited to get to write these characters. Right. Julia, I related to her so much when I read the books, and Alice, and they it never even occurred to us that they would exist only as foils or encouragement or discouragement for Quentin, who is our way into the story, but in a very knowing way, Lev Grossman wrote a fanboy in the center of a story that a fanboy would read, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. There's a meta level to The Magicians in that it is the knowing sort of love child of all of these, can't right, Narnia and Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. I mean, he's doing it on purpose. And he's right. saying, so somebody who would go to Comic-Con and buy the stuff of all of those book series and all of those movies, what if he discovered one of those places was real? What if he discovered magic was real? And part of that is exploring that we presume that the character who looks and sounds like Quentin, the guy who's sort of unassuming and a little bit nerdy, and but he's played by a very attractive actor, um, and frankly, like the straight white guy, right, that he would be the hero. But like, why is he the hero? Why would we presume he would be more heroic than Alice, yeah. right? And that became part of the story. Organically, the ensemble became more and more important. And Often it's a huge point of a season. It would be a presumption to think that Quentin is going to be the one who does the big important thing. Sometimes the big important thing he does is turn to his girlfriend and say, you know, you're a better magician than I am. And I just realized that my job is to be uh, as helpful to you as possible in this moment. Like, I shouldn't do it. You should do it. Yeah. Right. That's been more and more true as things have gone on. It's not just gender based. It's also about the other male characters on the show. And it's also about the fact that it's it's about a group instead of an individual. One of the things I love about television is it's inherently collaborative. Yes. Like when you were hiring a writer's room, yeah. what did you guys look to hire to to like sort of balance out uh, what you needed, what you didn't have, things like that? Because uh, it's, it's, you have great writers across the board on the show. So. We really do. We're really lucky. Most writers who came in to meet on The Magicians had read the books and were fans, which is kind of fun. Because then you can just have a conversation. Henry Alonzo Myers came in really excited about the books. Yeah. And so we were able to have a conversation that intimated a lot about his point of view. And it's sort of like Tetris or casting characters in a play. You don't want everybody to be the same. You yeah. don't want a room with six comic book writers, all of whom are super passionate about superheroes. You kind of want someone in there who just comes from a different, right? Yeah. So it, it really is about people coming in and just being themselves, mm-hmm. having different backgrounds, different life experiences. Um, and and then and then a lot of it is just instinct. You kind of look at them and you go, could I spend 14 hours a day, six days a week with this person for the next nine months? And you hope that you 
are right when you say yes. Yeah. One of the big strengths is so often, I, I won't take credit for this. I was talking to a, a different TV showrunner who I won't name as a private conversation. But okay. he's, he's a straight white guy. Name but he was like, okay. <laughs> but he was like, <laughs> I like to hire diversity because I don't know all the things I don't know. And then there are the people in the room who can tell me, well, you don't know this. And that makes my story stronger. You yeah. Know? And I mean, try, like I'm waiting for someone to tell me a downside yeah. to diversity. And I say that as someone who's still working on it, right? I, I I produced two TV shows at the same time this past season, You for Lifetime um, with Greg Berlanti and The Magicians. And we are looking to diversify still. And it's ongoing, right? This is actually probably part of a much, much bigger conversation about that. Maybe the best thing to say in a conversation of this size is just, I do not rest on the laurels of any show that has is able to hold up a diverse writer. I don't think that's really good enough. And that has been true many times in rooms that I've put together and rooms that I've been a part of. And so um, that's something I'm I'm trying to to help yeah. a little bit. Like I'm working with the WGA now and uh, talking to a lot of writers and showrunners who are like, okay, there's a big systemic problem here. That There's a pipeline problem that we need to start to work on. Well, we're coming into the end. We talked about monsters on and off throughout the show. So I did want to ask, what do you think makes a monster scary? Because we've talked about monsters that made you cry and monsters that have, you've like really, but what makes a monster scary? What's at the core of a great scary monster? If you try and trace the origin of monsters, like how did human beings start talking about monsters? They are a way for us to talk about humans. The scariest monsters have plausible motivations, I think. There's something about them that taps into fears that we already have. The fear that you feel when you're – so you go to your cabin in the woods and you're alone and you hear a sound and you don't know what that is, that's uh, in our genetic code to have that fear. Good monster building relies very, very heavily on what's already true about people. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. We're not trying to say this is scary because it, I don't, I mean, I don't even know how to build something like that. That's just, it would just be weird. Yeah. The thing I'll say about making monsters on the magicians that I always keep in mind, that we always keep in mind, is that it's not scarier to make them look scary. It's scarier to be able to project human emotions and human drives. So if an early sketch has angry eyebrows, we take away the angry eyebrows. Scary to have no eyebrows. Scarier to have um, a face that can show a range of emotions. Scarier to have a very blank face and then be like, what the fuck is that thing thinking? (laughs) Right? So I just start I start from there. And I would also just like to say I don't design the monsters on the show. That's a huge team effort. And what a privilege to watch the people make the creatures. Have you ever been in a creature shop? No, but I've seen far too many videos set in Guillermo del Toro's, and I want to. I want to go to there. Uh, yeah, I want to go to there too. The Masters FX in Vancouver that they work on a lot of shows, but they even just standing in the lobby, there's giant aliens everywhere. That's what they do all day. What they do is they they adjust the the tilt of an eyebrow, and it changes the entire character of a creature. So part of it is just hook up with people who are really good at building monsters, and they'll give you something that kind of freaks people out. You spent seven years on Supernatural, so you must know every urban legend, every cryptid, every weird story lurking the American backroads. What's your favorite? What's your favorite cryptozoological creature or urban legend or something along those lines? Oh, that is such a great question. 
I did know every single one of them. The ones that freak me out the most are the ones that could kind of get you anywhere. So there's a number of stories that depend on just saying the wrong words when you look in a mirror. Yeah. For some reason, that freaks me out. I, I would go so far as to say around the time we were writing that on Supernatural, I just did not like looking at mirrors huh. yeah. because there's kind of a vibe to those stories, which is like, by the way, you could just fuck up and yeah. call a monster. If you say the word candy, man, when you're looking at a mirror, you're just fucked, yeah. right? Yeah. So that was one I was very, very fond of. I always found the Phantom Hitchhiker. Yes. Because like it doesn't do anything to you, but just like the whole process of, oh, they were dead the whole time. It's like mind melting. So you know? creepy. Yes. <laughs> so we end every show by asking our guests some of the same questions. Oh. I'm going to ask you those. Uh, who's the writer you've learned the most from that you've never met that can be alive or dead? Rainer and Maria Rilke. Interesting. Yeah. Why, why that? Um, have you read Letters to a Young Poet? I haven't. I should. It's like the kind of like the Bible to me. It's um for those who haven't read it, I recommend it highly. Get the Stephen Mitchell translation. This is the power of it. Like I, I don't even speak German. I've read a beautiful translation, and it's still the most important book I've ever read. I, I read it when I was very young. Basically, what it is is it's a collection of letters that this poet Rilke wrote to a young man. This young man had a teacher who knew him, who knew Rilke, who was a published poet by that point, said, you should just like send a poem or two to Rilke and ask him what he thinks. So there's these 10 letters that Rilke wrote back that have all of this wisdom in them. First, there's a bunch of wisdom about writing, about not seeking praise or criticism too soon. A bit of a what's the rush, work on your craft, figure out what is really burning inside you. But as time goes on, you don't ever read the letters the young man wrote to him, but He's clearly disclosing more and more personal things about the griefs and the hardships of his own life. And Rilke is just so compassionate. And it's like one gem after another. And probably it's because I was reading it when my father was dying that it um, it to this day, I will go and just open it to a random page and it will kind of just help. So I think more than any one thing I've read and there's a lot about love in it. That's very quotable. You could definitely put it on the cover of a journal and sell it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's that more than any other collection of words, this one proves to me that you can affect someone with your words as deeply as handing them a, a pill of medicine. Because I feel like that's what that book did for me. You're, the final one has nothing to do with writing. It's actually our October question that I'm going to haul out now because I feel you'd have a good answer. What is the greatest Halloween costume you have ever uh, – it doesn't have to be Halloween. Just the greatest costume you have ever assembled for yourself. That is a great question. Do you have an answer for this one? Uh, what is I, your... I, I have an embarrassing answer for this one. What's um, that? When I was a kid, uh, and I didn't assemble this for myself, um, but when I was a kid, my uh, family did not celebrate Halloween because we were fundamentalist Christian. Mm -hmm. But I went to public school that had, you know, mm -hmm. Halloween. So I couldn't be like a supernatural creature. I always had to be like a real thing. So one year I said I wanted to be a gorilla. You know what? My mom had no time to make me a gorilla suit. <laughs> so she like got me a fur coat and some fur pants and then like photocopied a photo of a gorilla and turned it into a mask so i was wondering oh with like a black and white gorilla face it was it was well, very first of all my condolences for missing all those <laughs> halloweens as a child that's very sad you but know. you know now you're an adult and you can dress up every day if you want i can't really. yeah. who could stop you <laughs> yeah. um when I was a kid, I did a lot. I was aliens frequently. I was a Trekkie, so I was Vulcan frequently. I had the ears, and I was really, really into them. You know what the <laughs> best thing I ever did was? Sure. For those who don't live in Los Angeles, there's an amazing 
um, Holly. It's not really a parade. It's just they shut down West Hollywood. Right. And everyone goes in costumes. And West Hollywood is sort of a gay community in Los Angeles. So there's a preponderance of amazing drag queens there. And because I was going there with a group of friends, I decided to go and drag as a guy. Mm. And that was when I discovered that I'm a very handsome man mm. um, with the mustache and a little goatee and the hair pulled back in a ponytail. I look like a vaguely Spanish lover boy type and so that's one that I seriously considered rolling out um, more frequently because I was like I feel like I've got game when I'm dressed like a guy <laughs> well uh, we look forward to it Sarah thank you for joining us you can see the magicians on Netflix yes and, and sci-fi and all those places thank you I Think You're Interesting takes place in a strange and magical land far off from the rest of the world called Hollywood. That's a terrible joke, but it was made by Todd Vanderwerf, the host and executive producer of this program. Also, me. Our producer is Bridget Armstrong. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishat Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Allreich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. And our audio engineering and our studio are thanks to P3 Post here in Hollywood. Our recording engineer, as always, is Che Brooks. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you listen to it. It really helps us uh, to get the word about the show out there, both to prospective guests and to other people who might like to listen to it. You never know. People people like to listen to the show. If you have something you want to say that you don't want to leave in a review, you can email me, Todd at Vox.com, whether that's a suggestion for a guest or you want to tell me I... Uh, use too many weird vocables or something like that. Uh, and also, if you want to email the whole show, you can email ityi.podcast at vox.com, itye.podcast at vox.com. You can always tweet at me at tvoti tavoti. We'll be back next week with another great writer, somebody that I love to read the work of. And uh, I, I hope that you will stick around all month for our discussions with writers. Until then, remember, if you find yourself in a magical world don't panic see if you can be made king or queen see if you can take over good stuff <laughs>